in the first couple chapters of Genesis, it tells us the story of creation, how the world was physically made and the Lord's designs and its original ideal. And everything was great for those first two chapters until Genesis chapter 3 and the fall comes along. And we saw that man was plunged into sin and with him humanity as a whole and all of his descendants would have that inclination towards sin. Genesis chapter 4 and 5 was the focus of our study last Sabbath when we looked at the two lines from that fallen family. We had the line of rebellious Cain and his descendants reflecting the character of their forefather. And you also saw the line in Genesis chapter 5 of the faithful through Abel and eventually through his replacement Seth and their lineage there and how the Lord maintained a people on the earth who were faithful to him. And so you had these two lines going forward, but now we come to Genesis chapter 6 where those two lines come together. And you would love to think that, yes, the faithful line of Seth would win the hearts and minds of that unrepentant, unfaithful line of Cain, and they would come up to that high standard and join them on the high road. But in fact, what we see is quite the opposite, that the good is outwon by the evil, and thus we have the flood. The flood is the story that we're going to be studying this morning, but before we study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. And now, as we turn our attention to a study of your word, I would ask that you would teach us, as you've promised to do, and lead us into truth, not just of history, Lord, but of personal application to the days in which we're living just before your coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis chapter 6, if you would turn there, brings together those genealogies that were recorded in Genesis 4 and 5. Starting with verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, and now it outlines two lines, two groups, that the sons of God, that is a representation of that faithful line of Genesis 5, saw the daughters of men, a reference to the unfaithful line there we saw in Genesis 4, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whomever they chose. And the result in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. The Lord looks ahead and sees where this is going, that the wickedness is fastly multiplying on the earth. In fact, look at verse 5. What was the extent of the wickedness that was the result Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now notice carefully the language. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every, only, always. That's repetition, repetition, over and over again. What's he trying to say? That wickedness has flourished. And the wickedness apparently has triumphed in the earth that God created just such a seemingly short while ago in Edenic perfection. But every, every, every inclination, intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what do we find in verse 11 as we go through here? The earth also was corrupt before the God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
Sin was ubiquitous, it was universal, it spanned the globe. All humanity now shared in this sin. And thus we have this great flood. Now Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and then 9 record the story of the flood in all of its details. And we don't have time to go through all of those chapters, but briefly you understand that there was 120 years of probation given to the people on earth at that time, and Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, was so well read, was instructed to build an ark. And he was instructed to build that ark for the protection not only of himself and his family and also all the animals that would uh, repopulate the earth after it was destroyed with, with a flood, but also to anyone else who would be willing to come in if they would turn from their ways and join Noah and his family on the ark. Now, it has been, um, it has been suggested by... Uh, course, secular, non-believing science that the flood described here in Genesis 6 through 9 was merely a local flood affecting only a small portion of the ancient Near East. It was not really the worldwide event that we've kind of made it out to be. We've kind of blown it up into a caricature, but it's actually just a high water time or high season of water in some particular part of the world. But I want you to demonstrate from the text that what we're describing here is not just a few bad apples and the Lord is correcting a local issue, but this was a worldwide global event. For example, here in Genesis chapter 6, again, look at verse 7. What do we read? So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made him. Now go to verse 17 of the same chapter. Let's see the extent of this destruction. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven, what's that next word? All flesh, which is in the breath which in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. Continue in chapter 7, look at verse 4. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Going down to verse 17 of the same chapter. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Is it clear that the Bible is not trying to describe high water or flooding in the springtime? This is talking about a worldwide, global, life-ending catastrophe. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this, by the way... I want to drop this in here. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 99, speaking of how big and how bad and how scary this flood event was, we read these words. As the violence of the storm increased, trees, buildings, rocks, and earth were hurled in every direction. The terror of man and beast was beyond description. Then she adds, Satan himself, who was compelled to remain in the midst of the warring elements, feared for his own existence. That Satan looked at this. 
it was not only ending the life of every animal and every man and everything on the earth. It was so big and bad that Satan had an inkling for a moment that this might be his final end. That it would be the final destruction. Also, by the way, there are several Hebrew words that are translated into English as flood, the use throughout the Bible. But there's one Hebrew word that's used specifically and exclusively to describe this event. It's a fun word to say. It's mabul. Okay? It's a mabul. Now, I don't know Hebrew, but that one word is used only 13 times in the Bible. Twelve of those 13 times are right here in the Genesis account of the flood. Every time you see the word flood in there, that word is being translated is mabul. It's a unique word. It's only used one other time in Scripture, and that is in Psalm 29, which was our call to worship this morning, where the Lord is looking back on the flood. David is looking back on the work of the Lord at the flood, and he mentions it, capital F, the flood, the mabul. It's a distinct word that doesn't just mean it can't be mistaken for high water at a certain season or flooding of a particular river. It means a catastrophic, life-ending, world-altering event. Also, by the way, the geological record evidences a worldwide flood very helpfully. If you ever noticed, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or anything like it where you've seen lots of deep layers of the rock and the earth stripped away, what do you find? You find these beautiful, flat, very smooth layers of rocks. Right, and different materials in the earth. Now, you know, evolutionists will tell us that those were built over long, long periods of time, massive epochs, eras of Earth's history. But somehow they all remained very, very flat. But for instance, if you look at the topography of our Earth right now, it is not perfectly flat. No, it's kind of flat in Michigan. And in the Midwest, it's very flat. But there are other places where it's very, very jagged or very, very deep, and rivers and gorges cut through it. And it's not a flat, smooth, even surface. It's very, very ups and downs. And if it were to be settled in that way, you would see in the rock layers topography that matches what we see today. But somehow, all of the Earth's history that is collected in that rock layer is laid down perfectly flat and perfectly smooth, as though it were laid out by liquid poured out in a great flood. Anyway, we could go through the science of it all. Also, you have other interesting things, like single objects, like uh, petrified trees will run through several different rock layers that apparently that tree was billions of years old or something like that. But we could go through all that, but number one, it's not not my bag of tricks. This is not my strength. Other people can do that well. And the burden of our message today is not to establish the scientific credibility of the flood, though I believe that it's quite scientifically accurate. What I want to bring to your attention today is that the lesson of Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the destruction of the world by water that occurred early on in Earth's history, is actually used as a template for what will happen again in the times in which we're living. Let me show you something. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, the words of Jesus himself as he describes the events surrounding and preceding his own return. Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 37. Again, this is Jesus himself speaking about the events surrounding and preceding his own return to the earth. Matthew 24, starting with verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming, will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he explains. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. 
and did not know until the flood came and took them all the way, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he makes a parallel. If you want to know what the second coming will be like, look at the flood event. And the condition of the world before that, it will be the condition of the world before the second coming. And the destruction of the world at that time will be similar to the destruction. Christ himself uses the flood experience as a template for what's going to happen at the second coming. Let's go to the book of 2 Peter now. The apostle Peter picks up on this. And like Christ before him, uses the flood as an analogy for end-time events, as a comparison to what's going to happen at the time of Jesus' return. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 4. He starts with the destruction of the, or the expulsion of the angels out of heaven. Then he goes into the flood, and then he goes into Sodom and Gomorrah, and he uses these as examples of the coming judgment at the second coming. Again, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly. Okay. So he's using those as examples, and then skip down to verse 9. It says here, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So he said, just like the Lord saved the righteous out of that destruction of the flood, there will be people who will be saved out of this destruction that's coming. But you see the parallel again between the flood and the second coming of Jesus. This becomes more explicit in the very next chapter. Go to chapter 3. Starting with verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3, we read these words. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, what time of the earth's history is he talking about here? The last days. Our time. We know prophetically where we are in the timeline of earth's history. And apparently in those last days, scoffers will come. Now, what is scoffing? What does that mean to scoff? To taunt, to make fun of, to tease, right? To jest and joke. Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So they're doing what they want to do, regardless of what God wants them to do, yes? And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now pause right here. Are they genuinely seeking answers to this question? No, because they're scoffers walking according to their own lusts. They're asking this question not to get information, but to cast ridicule on those who still believe, yes? Okay. And they're asking this question, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. By the way, do you think that Noah had to face any ridicule like that? Are you serious that judgment's going to come? That God, the God who has never even sent a, a relatively small flood, not even a first raindrop, is going to re- deluge the whole planet and destroy all flesh? Please. There were scoffers in those days and there will be scoffers in the last days. God isn't going to rain down judgment. He hasn't done anything yet. He's not going to do anything. But notice that what Peter comments about this. Verse 5. For this they willfully forget. Now it's one thing to forget something. I don't know if you've come to that point in your life where that sometimes happens. 
I had something that happened with me this week. Very frustrating. In the middle of a conversation, had a great thought. I know it was brilliant. But as soon as I opened my mouth to say it, it was gone. Couldn't fish it, couldn't find it back. It was just out. So frustrated. Had to sit there with my face all hanging out. Now, that's rare for me. Now, it might be more for you. I don't know where you are with it, right? But I didn't want to forget that. I wanted to remember. It was just gone. But these people want to forget, right? What is it they want to forget? They willfully forget. By the way, that's not ignorance. That's stupidity, right? Ignorance is simply not knowing something. Stupidity is choosing not to know what you could know. Here, they have opportunity to know. There's a memory they're trying to block out. They willfully forget, watch this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, a reference back to creation there, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So he goes back to creation, the God who created the world then destroyed the world with that water that he created it from, right? by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, so it's the same God, the same word, are reserved for what? Fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So they forget that the Lord has destroyed this world once, and he's going to do it again, this time with fire instead of water that there is a judgment to come. They want to forget, they willfully forget that this is the God who destroys. So what I want to bring to your attention today are some of the fascinating parallels, just as Jesus said that the flood is a template for the second coming, just as Peter references that repeatedly here in his epistle. What I want to bring to your attention are some of the, I believe, fascinating parallels between the experience of the flood that Noah and his family endured in Genesis and the experience of the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus that we are to experience in our life today. For instance, at the close of probation, first of all, both experiences have a close of probation. Okay? We're going to look at that. And at that close of probation, there will be a clear contrast in the moral condition of humanity between the character of Satan and the character of Christ. Let's take a look at this. Let's go back to Genesis. As any good Bible study does, let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, again, let's look at that moral condition of the world at the time of the flood. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is a filling up of wickedness throughout the whole world. This is not a few bad apples, that this is a ubiquitous, universal digression from the original ideal, that this is a wickedness spread across the entire planet, okay? and that every inclination of the thoughts was only evil all the time. But at that same time, look again at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Had everyone turned against God? No, just most people had. There was Noah and his household who were faithful, yet the vast majority were unfaithful. Okay? There was a separation, a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked in that time. Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 7. 
Notice what the Lord says now in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Again, you notice the contrast. There's the rest of that generation, and then there's Noah and his household. And he says, You are coming into the ark because of this. Come in because I have seen. You are righteous before me in this generation. Now, stay in chapter 7. Go down to verse 16. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and notice this carefully, and the Lord, what? Shut him in. Did Noah close that door? No. Did his sons? No. Did anyone on the outside, did they hire them to push? No. The last giraffe didn't swing it with his tail? No, no, no. The Lord said, it's time to come in. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. There's a clear distinction between the character of Satan and the character of Christ. Come into the ark and the Lord himself shut him in. Apparently you get the picture that Noah was out there pleading with the people. Is there anyone else giving that last message of mercy? Come in. But then the voice said, it's time to go in. And when they go in, That door swings behind them, not by human hands, but the Lord himself shut them in. We see the same thing in the book of Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 22, looking at the end time events when Jesus will come for the second time. There's a close of probation and a declaration will be made that we read in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now let me ask you this question. Does this occur at Jesus' coming or before Jesus' coming? Before Jesus' coming. One of the best ways we can tell is just keep reading. Look at verse 12. Then the declaration is heard, and behold, I am coming quickly. So now the coming of Jesus is imminent, but it hasn't happened yet. That before he returns, there will be a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the just and the unjust. And God says, that's it. No one's changing sides anymore. The righteous have already made up their decision, and the wicked have sealed their doom. And then he says, and behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, I want to point out this, as is pretty important to this message, that this close of probation, this distinction between the righteous and the wicked that's clearly seen will be declared final by God, that is the close of probation, before Jesus comes, not at the moment he comes, but there will be the close of probation, and then it will tarry for a little while before Jesus comes. Keep that in mind as we go forward. Verse 13, Jesus continues saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he talks about this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter through the gates into the city. Notice they're going in, they have the right to go in because they're faithful to the Lord and keep his commandments. Just like Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was righteous and kept the commandments of God. It's a clear distinction. 
But, it says in verse 15, outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So you see this clear distinction between the moral character of those people inside and outside at the time of the flood and at the time of Jesus' return, just preceding that event. Continuing on, let's go back now to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 describes this same thing. 2 Peter chapter 3. We read in verse 9 about the mercy of the Lord and how he's taking his time, he's being patient with us because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Again, in verse 9, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And in this context, what is the specific promise they're talking about? The promise to come again, right? To destroy the earth with fire. He's not slow concerning his promise as some count slackness or slowness. And again, if, if you were the owner of a company and you had an employee who was always slow or late to work, you would ascribe motive to that lateness, would you not? If it happens enough, you'd say, well, they're either forgetful or they just don't care, right? Or they're lazy, but you put some sort of character attribution to that person for their lateness. And he says, don't think that the Lord is being late because he's forgetful or that he's lazy or that he doesn't care. Why is the Lord taking his time, according to this passage? But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You notice in the story of Genesis there, he saw the wickedness of them on earth was very great, so he gave it some time, 120 years, so that Noah could build the ark, that he could give the message of mercy, so that if anyone wanted to come on board, they could. Same thing is happening at the second coming. But it continues on in verse 10. Sometimes we stop there and say, well, the Lord is just patient. He's just going to wait and wait and wait. No, no, no. Look at verse 10 now. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Do you see the definitive will? It will. It will. It's not indefinite. He's not dragging his feet for an, uh, eons of time. There's a time coming where the Lord's going to say, that's it. And therefore, look at the advice given. Look at the counsel we receive in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So the question of preparation for the second coming is not one of storing up canned food and bottled water. It's not about physical survival. It's about spiritual character preparation. What kind of person ought you to be? Are you the kind that the Lord will say, let him be righteous still, or are you going to be the wicked still? But right now, we're determining that character that will either fall or stand in the final crisis. Notice this also. After the close of probation, this is what we kind of hinted at before in Revelation 22. After that close of probation, there will be a brief time of trouble. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. When it seems that the Lord has abandoned or even turned against the righteous. Now, why would that occur? But by the way, at that time, God's people will be delivered. Let's see this in Genesis chapter 6. I'm sorry, chapter 7. 
chapter 7 again, Genesis, the flood story, we find that Noah and his family went through this experience. Genesis chapter 7. Now again, look at verse 7. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his son's wife, went into the flood because of the waters of the flood, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Okay, so they're going into the boat. Now skip down to verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. So he goes into the boat. You get the last message of mercy. Anyone else? The Lord ushers them in. The door swings closed. And you would imagine with with that closing latch of that door, you would hear the first rumble of thunder. And lightning. Nope. They had this big, huge message. Everyone's going to die. They go in the boat. The whole rest of the day. 73 and sunny. Next day, 73 and sunny. The next day, 73 and sunny. For seven full days, they have to sit now. Imagine you're inside of that boat. You were faithful enough to build the thing. You were faithful enough to give the message of warning to those who were outside, and here you are on the inside, faithful, 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 and what do you've got for it? 73 and sunny. Now flip it around. Think about the people on the outside. They're loving it, right? They're scoffers, right? Just like at the end of time. Oh, nothing's going to happen. We told you. It's scientifically absurd what you're proposing here. It's philosophically ridiculous. It's like every, you're just wrong. And you think that wickedness escalated? That that violence increased? Hmm. Now listen to this. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 98. And I would urge you, if you want to do some Sabbath afternoon reading, the days are getting a little bit longer now. You've got a little extra Sabbath. Go home and read a little bit. Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter entitled The Flood. This is from page 98. It describes this close of probation and then resulting waiting time. Listen carefully. Mercy had ceased its pleadings for the guilty race. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air had entered the place of refuge. Noah and his household were within the ark, and the Lord shut him in. Shut him in. A flash of dazzling light was seen, and a cloud of glory more vivid than the lightning descended from heaven and hovered before the entrance of the ark. The massive door, which it was impossible for those within to close, was slowly swung to its place by unseen hands. Noah was shut in, and the rejectors of God's mercy were shut out. The seal of heaven was on that door. God had shut it, and God alone could open it. Now notice the parallel. So when Christ shall cease his intercession for guilty men before his coming in the clouds of heaven, the door of mercy will be shut. Then divine grace will no longer restrain the wicked. Now you get this image, remember? In Revelation it talks about the sealing of the 144,000 with the seal of the living God and there's the angels holding back the four winds. But then, once the implication is once they're sealed, that those winds will be released upon the earth. That God will withdraw his protection from this planet and literally all hell will break loose. You think if Satan is bad now, this is with God's hand of protection. What would it possibly look like if that hand were removed? 
This is what they experienced at the flood. Watch this now. Satan, they will, speaking of our time, when the Lord will come again, then divine grace will no longer restrain the wicked, and Satan will have full control of those who have rejected mercy. They will endeavor to destroy God's people. But as Noah was shut into the ark, so the righteous will be shielded by divine power. Continuing on, this little time of trial. For seven days after Noah and his family entered the ark, there appeared no sign of the coming storm. During this period, their faith was tested. It was a time of triumph to the world without. The apparent delay confirmed them in the belief that Noah's message was a delusion and that the flood would never come. Notwithstanding the solemn scenes which they had witnessed, the beasts and birds entering the ark and the angel of God closing the door, they still continued their sport and revelry, even making a jest of these signal manifestations of God's power. So they started mocking the very signals that God had given them as warnings. They started using that as taunts against God's people. They gathered in crowds about the ark, deriding its inmates with a daring violence which they had never ventured upon before. So apparently the world was filled with violence, but it wasn't fully unleashed until this time of differentiation, this close of probation came. When they were locked in the ark, they started hearing all the taunts and jests and violent slurs, pounding, I'm sure, on the door. Now, compare that with the scenes the Bible describes of just before the coming of Jesus. Go to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. In the last chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, we read in verse 1 of this time of the close of probation and what to expect here on the earth. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. That's a reference to Jesus Christ who's going to stand in completion of his most holy place intercession and work of judgment. It will be set. Michael will stand up. That great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there shall be a what? Time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time. Now, often we just kind of stop right there and we say, boy, that time of trouble, it's going to be awful, which it will be. But notice what the very next words are. And at that time, your people shall be what? Delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So apparently, what's the preparation? Found, be found written in the book. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, again, ties this to the experience of Jacob. Jeremiah 30 and verse 7 reads, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Every time you see a reference to the time of trouble, apparently just out of that will be the salvation of God's people. No one apparently dies during the time of Jacob's trouble. It just seems like they will. In the same way that Noah and his family were locked in the boat and it seemed like all of their hopes were dashed and that they were the sport of the enemies of God, it was at that time that the rain started to fall. And what to the wicked on the outside was the manifestation of judgment, of condemnation, to those on the inside, it was evidence that God still loved them, that though he had been quiet, they had not been left alone. 
They had not been abandoned by God. Which brings me to this passage. I want to share with you this. from It's from Signs of the Times, November 27, 1879. If you take notes, that's S.T., November 27, 1879. She writes, Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Now, why is it called the time of Jacob's trouble? Why does Jacob get thrown into this end-time picture? What was Jacob's experience with God? He wrestled with God, right? The very one who could and eventually would save him was the one he thought he was fighting against, right? He wrestled with God, and apparently this end time is called the time of Jacob's trouble. She describes, foes will be all around them, ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them, for it appears to them, as to Jacob in his distress, that God himself has become an avenging enemy. Think about that, that God himself has become an avenging enemy. Now, it's one thing if your friends turn their back on you. It's another thing if your family turns their back on you. But what happens when it seems like the one person that you've put all of your trust in, all of your faith in, he goes quiet, things go dark, and it seems like even he's against you. His promises aren't coming true. Has anyone ever experienced anything like that in Scripture history? Well, yes. There are a few examples. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Right? Daniel's friends going to the fiery furnace had no assurance that God would be with them, but they said, still we will not bow, even if he doesn't save us. And of course, the most famous and the quintessential example of them all is Jesus Christ. What did he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have... He didn't say, why have they forsaken me? He knew why they forsook him. But from his perspective, it seemed like God himself had forsaken And apparently a similar experience will happen to those living at the last time. It will seem like the promises you believed in have not come true, that you're left all alone, and you're done. But watch this. It is the design of God to arouse the dormant energies of his people to look out of and away from self to one who can bring help and salvation that the promises given for just such a time may be seen in their preciousness and relied upon with unwavering trust. Here, faith is proved. There was no external evidence that Noah was right, but God had said so, so he stayed put in that boat. There was no external evidence when Christ was upon the cross that this was a good idea, but he still said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the last days, there will be a people who say, I don't see the resurrection. I don't see the potential hope. I don't see the little black cloud. You know, I don't see anything at all. But because your word says so, I'll be faithful even unto death. Thus we see that the people who fear God in those days did not love their lives even unto the death. It's a powerful thought. And just like in Genesis... God allowed them after that time of trial to step out into a world that he's going to make all new. The same thing will happen in the last days. Revelation chapter 21, some of those beautiful language in all of Scripture. 
Revelation chapter 21. Starting with verse 1, we read these words. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, for God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Friends, we know that the wickedness of the earth is increasing just as it was in the days of Noah. We know that God has destroyed the world by flood and he's promised to do so by fire and we're living in those last days of earth's history. We have been given, like Noah, a unique message of salvation to give to the world. And it's of little coincidence, I believe, that that message starts there in Revelation chapter 14 in verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment, what? Has come. And worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and what? Springs of water. The same God who destroyed by water is now in the final phases of the judgment before His destruction by fire. We have a message to give to the world, like Noah on the edge of that ark, saying, if anyone else wants to come in, this is your time. Friends, the three angels' messages are to be like Noah's ark in that day. A message of mercy, a message of warning, a message of hope to the whole world. And we've been entrusted with its deliverance. We are to be messengers like Noah, And like Noah, we will have to go through a time of difficulty, a time of testing of our faith, a time of trial. But like Noah, we can say, because God said so, I will not move, I will not come down, I will not recant. But God is faithful. We need to remember that the God who loves us and is patient with us, which he is, is also the God who's finishing up his work of judgment right now. And that someday soon, this great and awesome God will destroy all wickedness and create a new home for the righteousness. And right now is our time of preparation. Do we want to be all those on the inside of the ark through faithfulness to God or on the outside taunting those who still believe? Friends, we serve a great and awesome God and today is the day that he's asking for you to commit to him once again. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.